Do you like my diagram of core functions and duties? I love it. Minnesota Supreme Court. My name is Allison Key. I clerked for Justices David Strauss and Natalie Hudson during the 2016-2017 term of the Minnesota Supreme Court. My name is Mark Thompson. I'm an attorney at Nichols Castor in Minneapolis, and I was a law clerk for Justices David Lillehaug and Ann McKaig in the same term. Uh, so this is a show about the Minnesota Supreme Court, which hears about a dozen cases every month. We're going to give you an in-depth look at uh, what we think is the most interesting case each month. And we're also going to touch on other interesting Minnesota Supreme Court cases and uh, cover a bit of Minnesota legal news each episode. As former employees of the court and its current admirers, we actually think the court is really interesting and could also be covered much better. Right now, there's no real reliable outlet for the in-depth discussion of the biggest Minnesota Supreme Court cases, and hopefully until now. So we are going to try to be your go-to source for that. Uh, right, and we'll get rolling in just a second. A couple notes before we do. Um, we were both clerks for the court for one year, uh, so we won't be talking about anything that happened during our year there, but that is rapidly receding into the past, uh, so it shouldn't come up much. So today we're going to talk about the State Auditor's Office, but before we do that, we've got a few fun items of legal news. Uh, this one was mine. Uh, Star Tribune article, St. Paul Lawyer Moonlights as Junk Food King on Instagram, reviewing mm. snacks for thousands. <laughs> Instagram handle Snack Seller, 26,000 followers. I'm going to just uh, quote you from the article. Uh, the 28-year-old lawyer works out religiously, then eats ice cream, chips, Oreos, ding-dongs, M&Ms, basically all the food that many people try to avoid so that he can review them for his thousands of followers. Um, a quote from this attorney named Ben Passer, uh, quote, snacks are having a moment right now. Are they? Um, no, no, I don't I think don't so, but, uh, good for him. Also really liked, uh, they use this, like the, the headline was like, it's a lawyer, but he's fun. And in that spirit, <laughs> there are zero details about what his legal job is. I creeped it uh, on LinkedIn. You can too. I won't ruin it. Uh, he's a fun dude and he likes snacks. Oh, good for him. Nice little side hustle he has going yep. on there. Another interesting piece of legal news floating around lately is uh, centered around the Fishbot case. Have you heard about this case? A little bit. Mm-hmm. So with Al Franken's resignation from the Senate, which made the huge news nationally. Yeah. So Tina Smith, who was the lieutenant governor of Minnesota, was then nominated by Governor Dayton to replace Al Franken in the U.S. Senate until the upcoming 2018 elections. Now, what's interesting about that for Minnesota is that according to the Minnesota Constitution, the line of succession dictates that the Senate president, currently held by Republican Michelle Fischbach, then would elevate to the now vacant lieutenant governor position. So what's interesting about this is that the Republicans now have a majority in the Minnesota Senate and Fischbach doesn't want to leave her post there to serve as lieutenant governor because through various special elections, there might be a change in the balance of the Senate. Right. It's a one seat majority, right, for the Republicans. So So if she loses this seat, if she has to become lieutenant governor, have a special election to replace her, Democrats win. 
then they lose that majority. Um, so to solve this problem, she says she's going to hold both p- positions simultaneously. So she's going to take the lieutenant governor position as the Constitution requires, and she's also going to stay in the Senate. And she said that her primary focus will actually be in the Senate. Uh, right. Clever move. I, I know some uh, Republicans feel that uh, Governor Dayton was trying to gain the system. Strategic. Uh, right. And so this is their counter move. So um, a lot of interest has been in whether this is constitutional. Um, so the Constitution has um, what people are calling the incompatibility doctrine that says no legislature may hold any post besides postmaster or notary public while remaining in office. So that would appear to prevent Fishbach from being able to be a senator and be lieutenant governor at the same time. Do we have, is there like a lawsuit, like live? There is a live lawsuit, yes. So she says, no, I am allowed to do this. There's Minnesota Supreme Court precedent from 1898 supporting this. But just recently, like you were mentioning, on January 12th, one of her Senate district constituents sued her, claiming that she's violating the Constitution by holding both posts and that the constituent then is not getting effective representation in the Senate. Um, So that case is called Dusoski v. Fishbach. Um, And that case may likely end up in the Minnesota Supreme Court. Again, another political turmoil that I'm sure the Minnesota Supreme Court is just dying to get involved in. (laughs) They haven't had enough of those. Um, But what's interesting about this actually is even though it will maybe end up in the Minnesota Supreme Court, it kind of has already involved the court in a weird way. So the lieutenant governor, as a position, by statute, chairs an advisory committee on capital area security. That's just a statute that says the lieutenant governor is then in charge of that committee. So the committee had a meeting on January 3rd, but Fishbach actually did not chair the meeting. She just sat in the audience. Okay. So the meeting then was chaired by none other than Chief Justice Lori Gilday of the Minnesota Supreme Court. So a senator kind of got confused by this and asked Chief Justice Gilday why Fishbach was not acting as chair and instead was sitting in the audience because he apparently came late to the meeting. And I I think there was a motion to permit the chief justice to chair the meeting in the stead of the lieutenant governor. And Minnesota lawyer had an article kind of retelling the events that happened. And I'll just read you a part of the article. It's kind of interesting. So Minnesota lawyer says, I understand we have in the room an acting lieutenant governor, he, meaning the senator, told Gilday. Why would Senator Fishbach not be considered the chair if the lieutenant governor, by state statute, is the chair of this entity? Do we know? Gilday but firmly shut him down. I'm not sure that question is germane to the motion, she said, so I'm going to rule it out of order. Dibble then says, it's important to my understanding of the purpose for appointing the chair. Does anyone know? Minnesota lawyer says a suspended moment of silence followed, which a Democratic senator finally broke. Since it was clear that Fishbach had no intention of chairing the meeting, the Democratic senator told Dibble, elevating Gilday temporarily had to happen. The motion allowing Gilday to proceed carried and the committee did its work. Hmm. So I think it's interesting that the chief justice is... kind of already accidentally gotten involved in this whole, is she lieutenant governor or is she not situation? So eyes on that for if and when it comes to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Very strange move 
by the chief justice, although she is a woman who just solves problems. So I respect her for that. She right. just chairs the meeting and gets it over with. Agreed. However, like it's not strictly legally germane, but I feel like we're looking at why you don't have a lieutenant governor be a senator. Like you have to decide on what your job is. And then once you decide on the job, you have to like chair the meetings that you're in charge of. Mm-hmm. So like if you try and do both or neither, then you end up with like the chief justice chairing administrative meetings and it's weird. Right. And I'm not sure if it's because she hadn't been sworn in yet at that time or she just decided to focus on being a senator versus being lieutenant governor and had started, like you said, deciding not to do parts of some. But allegedly she's already declined the salary of lieutenant governor, which I think is just her constitutional claim does not rely on her actually refusing one of the salaries. Just take the money. Like it's been a rough few months. Her argument is I'm allowed to do this. So presumably she would also be allowed to take the money. So I'm not sure what she thinks she's gaining by that. But especially because legislators don't make that much money. Oh, go on vacation. She could could use a couple extra bucks, I'm sure. All right. One more. Uh, Kara Levin's story uh, titled Minnesota courtrooms become more diverse. Uh, Just a few encouraging statistics. Uh, In the first seven years of Governor Dayton's tenure, the number of judges of color has increased by 93%. Uh, Number of female judges is up 35%. Number of Hispanic judges is up 84%. And uh, of course, more notably, uh, at least in the press, Governor Dayton has appointed to the Minnesota Supreme Court, uh, that court's first and second black women on the court in Mimi Wright and uh, Natalie Hudson, mm-hmm. and the first Native American justice uh, in Ann McCaig, and the first openly gay justice in Margaret Chudich. Um, so some positive efforts going on as far as diversity in Minnesota court. So another thing we're going to do is uh, just do a little roundup of the cases that we find interesting from the Minnesota Supreme Court other than the featured case. And we have just one of those cases this month. Uh, it's called State v. Decker, or as we refer to it in the common law headquarters here, uh, the Dick Pick case. The Dick Pick case. So uh, Decker sent a 14-year-old girl a photo of his penis on Facebook. Facebook Messenger. Bad move. He was then found guilty by a jury under two statutes. Uh, one for fifth degree criminal sexual assault for engaging in masturbation or lewd exhibition of the generals in the general pre- in the presence of a minor under the age of 16. Uh, the second, indecent exposure for willfully and lewdly exposing his body or the private parts thereof in the presence of a minor. So the Supreme Court's considering uh, basically two issues in this case. Um, The simplest version of it is, does it count as uh, sexual conduct and indecent exposure if you had sent pictures over the internet, in this case, Facebook Messenger? Uh, And secondly, does it count as indecent exposure and fifth-degree criminal sexual conduct if the uh, exposure is via an image rather than your traditional uh, in-person person-to-person exposure, exposing yourself in the traditional sense. Right. Um, So an interesting case as we wind our way into the horrifying 21st century. Right. Still kind of surprises me this is the first time the Supreme Court has taken up this issue. You got to think it's certainly not the first time it's happened on Facebook. So um, Or over image. We haven't had that technology for a while. Right. Our feature case this week is Otto v. Wright County, uh, another big constitutional case at the Minnesota Supreme Court. My first thought about this case right out of the gate is looking at oral argument and seeing that one justice already recused. Justice Alog's out, presumably because Fredrickson and Byron is involved, though justices don't share why they recused. 
Justice Strauss is no longer on the court. He's now a judge on the Eighth Circuit. So we have five justices deciding this huge constitutional issue. So the way I read it, Donald Trump possibly handed Rebecca Otto a win in this case. <laughs> we'll, we'll see about that. Um, and we should note that five is the minimum uh, number of justices you can have before uh, somebody gets pulled in on the case from the Court of Appeals. So right, it's like a, a real quorum. Court. Yep. So anyway, those are my first thoughts about the case. But let's talk about how this case came about. Started back in February 2016, which... 2015 legislative session, but the actual events occurred in February 2016, which goes to show you how long it takes litigation about these kinds of things to travel up through the court. Um, So the law that's actually at issue in this case, it's the 2015 legislative session's appropriations bill. And the specific provisions at issue in this case surround the ability of the state auditor to conduct audits of the 86 or 87 state counties. And the legislation in particular made it a choice of the counties to choose to go through the state auditor's office or to hire private CPA firms to audit their county's finances. Is that correct? That's right. And so we should get a little context about where the state of things was before the new law. So uh, there's quite a bit of argument uh, between the parties about the kind of historical role of the auditor, and we'll get into that. But over the last several decades, uh, the state auditor's office has audited counties, uh, Minnesota counties. And then uh, in 2003, that changed a little bit. There were budget cuts by the legislature. And so the auditor started having to determine uh, only certain counties that her office would audit. Uh, The rest of the counties she had a choice to audit, but would be in the first instance audited by a private CPA firm. So the the change that's being made by the new law is that rather than the auditor having the first first choice about whether to audit a county, the county itself can decide whether it's audited by a private firm or by the state. Right, the kind of, the locus of that choice shifted from her office to the counties. And in addition, I think it's important to note that the legislation that was passed at issue in this case did actually two things. First, it required annual audits, whereas before there wasn't a requirement that each county had to be audited annually. The state auditor could choose whether an audit was necessary and who was to conduct that audit. And in addition to requiring annual audits, then as Mark was discussing, there was that component that said the county was able to choose who was going to audit its books. Um, So I think also, in addition to the substantive provisions of the law, how the law came about becomes relevant in this case, particularly to the single subject clause violation that becomes relevant later. So maybe just an intro into the process of how this law was passed. So as mentioned in the 2015 legislative session, the House introduced a bill permitting these counties to have the private accounting firms conduct their audits rather than the state auditor's office. This House bill then was later amended to include all appropriations that the House wanted for the 2015 legislative session. And Mark, stop me if I get anything wrong here. So the Senate had no analogous private audit provision in its version of the appropriations bill, but did pass an appropriations bill. So then the two versions of the appropriations bill had to come together and be combined in a conference committee. And there's some confusion about the deals that were made in that conference committee. So the Democrats say there was a compromise about these private audit provisions that said instead of permitting counties to let private firms audit their books, 
this bill would only have a study of the auditor's office to say, do people like the state auditor's office? Is she charging too much? Are the counties happy with their services? So that was the Democrats' understanding of what was going to come out of this conference committee. But instead, the conference report in its final version of the appropriations bill then had this provision that outright outsourced the choice of who was going to audit to the counties to say private firms are perfectly fine if you want to use them to audit your books. So then that appropriation bill went to Dayton's desk and Dayton publicly objected to the private audit provisions in the appropriations bill, but said he had no choice because if he vetoed the entire appropriations bill, then the government would be defunded and the government would be shut down. So Dayton reluctantly signed the entire appropriations bill, including a provision, a substantive provision, that he disagreed with, which was the private audit provision. So that's the backdrop of how this law with the private audit provisions came to be. Right. And you can see there's this is a legal case, but there's a lot of politics everywhere. And that carries over definitely into the oral argument, where at times I think the justices and the parties struggle to figure out what the heck we're really even talking about here as far as guiding principles. Right. And it's a familiar story for them because as we know, this happened in 2011, this happened in 2013, this happened here in 2015, and this also happened in 2017 when the court was also weighing in on last minute appropriations deals that right. legislature was making. So as far as what law we're working with, it's pretty thin. Um, the state auditor, Rebecca Otto, who was the plaintiff and, and now the appellant, brought the challenge under two sections of the Minnesota Constitution. One that says uh, no branch of government can exercise any powers belonging to another branch. Another that just says the executive department includes an auditor. So those don't really get you very far. And I think the justices keyed into that pretty quickly. So uh, here's uh, Justice Gilday uh, talking about that. Counsel, with respect to the first issue, this, the issue that you frame as a separation of powers issue, is there a specific provision in the Constitution that you contend Section 6.481 alters in some way, a provision in the Constitution? I have no thoughts about that because I don't understand what that question is getting at. I think she's just saying, uh, like, we get that you, the auditor, are upset, but you're making a constitutional challenge here. And is there anything in the Constitution guaranteeing you uh, to what was taken away from you? I think that's the entire premise of her argument, is that Matson interprets those provisions to say that auditing is a core function of my office and you can't interrupt a core function of my office. But we can get into that when we talk more about the framing exactly of this argument when you go into the other provisions. Uh, right. And I, Justice Anderson followed on later, uh, making a point, uh, another point about kind of the vagueness of what we're dealing with, what you can play. Does it matter, counsel? Um, I spent a little time looking through the Constitution, and I, I think I'm right about this, that there are nine references to uh, the auditor somewhere in that neighborhood. Most of them are non-substantive. The only two substantive ones I could find were in Article 11, Section 6 and 7 that talked about certificate of indebtedness and bonds. The Constitution really doesn't set out a clear description of what the auditor's functions are supposed to be. Um, at least that's the way I read it. Does that matter here? How does that cut? And I think that gets back to the entire framing of Otto's argument, which relies on a series of constitutional provisions and then one Minnesota Supreme Court case, Matson, that 
kind of all tell a story of why this legislation violates separation of powers because it removes a core function of her office. Right. I I think it's a fair point by Justices Gilday and Anderson that we do not have a ton of law to stand on here. So it's going to get uh, a little theoretical and a little vague uh, pretty fast. But we should talk about uh, Matson, which is the, the case that really sets the table here. Mm-hmm. So as Mark said, Article 5 of the Constitution, Section 1, kind of sets out the executive branch and what that consists of, including the state auditor. Um, And Section 4 of that same article, Article 5, says that the duties of the executive officers shall be prescribed by law. And Matson then, which was a case in 1986 by the Minnesota Supreme Court, expanded on what those sections of Article 5 meant by saying that the legislature then has the authority to prescribe the duties of the executive branch, which includes the auditor. So the legislature now has the authority to decide what the executive officer's duties are. Um, But in Matson, the court also said something else that was important, which is that the legislature can't use that authority to abolish what are called core functions of any executive office. So there's a limitation in the legislature's ability to change the duties of the auditor's office because it can't abolish all functions of an of an executive office that would do violence to the title the drafters afforded the office and the core functions necessarily implied therefrom. Right. Um, so now we've kind of moved from debating the shifty constitutional language to debating the meaning of this phrase, core function. And uh, Chief Justice Gilday has some thoughts on that. You use the word or the phrase core function, um, and I think sometimes in our case law we talk about core function, sometimes we talk about inherent authority. I want to see if we can agree on a definition. It seems to me that what we're getting at are the powers and duties that the entity came into the government with at the time the government was created. Does that fit with your notion of what we're talking about here? So what just as Chief Justice Gilday is getting at there, I think, relates to this framing that we've set up, that there are some inherent core functions in every executive office that Matson says the legislature can't touch. But then there are these additional duties of the office that the legislature can create, can abolish, can modify. So the question becomes, what is a core function and what is not? And does this legislation that was passed in the Appropriations Bill of the 2015 session relate to a core function or one of the peripheral duties that the legislature has the ability to modify. And it becomes really important how you define core functions because that's exactly how you answer this question. And Chief Justice Gilday there is saying, well, I would guess he would define core function as whatever functions existed in the office when it was created because otherwise who else would decide what a core function is and what a peripheral duty is that the legislature is allowed to weigh in on. What do you think about that? That sounds right, uh, but that's an argument with motivation uh, because I think it's established that the auditor did not have a specific duty to audit counties at the inception of the office. Is that right? I agree, but that's just a fair conclusion because you have to tack the idea of core function to something. And I think Chief Justice Gilday's point is what else is there to tack it to? What else is so inherent in the office? What other definition could you use besides 
what existed in the framers' minds at the inception. And there are some other theories that Otto has, but I think that's what Chief Justice Gilday is. The most concrete answer to that question goes back to the founding of the office. So it's probably useful to do a little background on uh, the history here. It's always dangerous when lawyers start making arguments steeped in history, but we kind of have no other choice. So the briefs lay out that uh, in the territorial period of Minnesota in the mid-19th century, uh, the legislature created a statutory office uh, within the executive department called the Public Examiner. This was a supplement to the state auditor. And the Public Examiner was auditing counties' finances. Uh, In 1973, the legislature abolished the Office of the Public Examiner and transferred those duties to the state auditor. And up until this most recent bill, the state auditor had been officially in charge of auditing counties. The Chief Justice, again, uh, got involved in a fight about that history. What has happened, first the auditor was performing her function by do, uh, auditing warrants. And, and from the beginning of time, she was, uh, the state auditor was uh, auditing counties, and we established this in the record, and it was a different That's way. That's just not true factually, counsel. Factually, they were auditing the, the flow of tax dollars from the counties to the state, which was what was important to this state back in the late 18, the mid-1800s. Kind of makes you wonder what the chief's objective in fighting about factual details was, but I think it does get to the broader question of then what is Otto's formulation of how you define a core function? Right, because so Otto makes a point in her brief that uh, I think something like 40 or so of her 90 employees are primarily devoted to auditing county. She's arguing, how can this not be a core function? This is what a big portion of my employees are doing every day. And the chief is responding, this is a dangerous uh, path that we're heading down if we're allowing you in the year 2017 to define uh, what the core functions are of the office. There's gotta be some objective understanding of what this office means. And I agree that she has a point that if the next state auditor comes in and starts devoting 40% of her employees to whatever she wants, is that now a core function of the office? So the chief's point is the current occupant then decides what the shifting definition of core function means, and that can't be true. Right, and a number of justices got involved here. So we'll play you clips from uh, first the chief justice and then Justice Strauss and Justice Hudson. So what case law stands for the proposition that the current uh, occupant of the office can decide what the office's core functions are? With respect to um, core functions, you disagreed with the chief and said you have to look at it over time. You you can't look at it at the beginning, even though we talk about it in terms of inherent and core functions. What I worry about is not necessarily what happened here with your approach, but what would happen if a constitutional officer uh, aggrandized their power. In other words, took power from someone else or from some other office. And under those circumstances, an evolving approach or an approach that didn't look at the, at the time of the founding would 
would allow officers to aggrandize their power. They'd say, well, I've been doing this for 30 years, and now only somebody, now somebody's challenging it, even though it wasn't within the contemplation of the founders. What do we do about a situation like that? And isn't it better to have a rule that looks at what was contemplated at the time of the founding? Um, I want to go back to Article 5, where, as has been discussed, it gives the legislature the authority to prescribe the duties for the auditor. It also gives the legislature the authority to change those duties. I'm curious in, if, in your mind, what are the limits on their ability to do that? Because the statute, the, uh, Article 5 also talks about the public health and welfare. And so is that a limit in your mind? And if it is, what was the public health and welfare issue that was going on here? Or what are those limits? I want to go back and maybe insert a comment after Justice Strauss's line of questioning. I think this is very classic for Justice Strauss to say core functions, inherent authority, don't exist in a vacuum. They exist in the context. They are attached to something. But I would offer in defense of Otto that Matson itself doesn't dictate that the core functions of the office necessarily have to come from the framers. In fact, Matson itself literally says that the legislature cannot change any functions of the executive office that would, quote, do violence to the title the drafters afforded to the office and the core functions implied therefrom. So it stands to reason that the court, and I think Otto argues this, is that the court could consider what is implied in the title of an auditor, and that is what creates the core functions versus whatever the framers intended at the time the office was created. And I think that is a fair reading of Otto's argument. One final thing before we move off the subject I think is important to highlight is that the counties actually had another argument that they responded to Otto's central premise that this was removing a core function of my office by passing this legislation permitting private firms to conduct these audits is that the county says, well, actually, in the law that was passed permitting private audits of counties, there's actually a line at the end of subdivision three of that legislation that says the state auditor can make additional examination as the auditor determines to be in the public interest. So while the legislation required an annual, required an annual audit and permitted the county to choose who conducted that audit, the state auditor under this legislation itself still retains the power to conduct any additional audit that it deems to be in the public interest. So the county, I think, has a pretty good argument from the text of that language to say, even if we agreed with you that this was a core function of your office, the text of this legislation doesn't actually prevent you from auditing absolutely any county for any reason. Yeah, I think the response to that, which is something that drew Justice Tudich's attention, is that there was a subsequent 2017 bill on this topic, which uh, changed how the funding related to those examinations is allocated. So previously, if the auditor conducted such an examination following up on a CPA firm, the county would reimburse the auditor's office. The 2017 changes made it so that that money from the county for the subsequent examination would now go to the state general fund. So some concern about whether the auditor uh, is being diminished by having uh, the ability to do the exam, but not the funding that uh, would provide for it. I think the justices are further concerned, not only with the funding mechanism, but how they deal with the fact that there was a 2017 change because the text of the law when the legislation was excuse me when the litigation was initiated didn't have this 2017 change so all of the funding for the additional examinations did go back to the state auditor no problem no core function violation 
but can the court consider a subsequent 2017 change that hasn't been ruled on below? Yeah, this was a particular subject of concern for Justice Trudich, so we'll play a couple of quick clips from her here. May we take into account, the, as we decide this case, the further changes to the auditor's office that was made by the legislature in 2017? Council, uh, there were also changes made to funding, because originally, when the state auditor made additional examinations that she determined to be in the public interest, which I understand to be an important check on the process, even when the auditor gave a CPA the duty of auditing a county, she still retained that ability to check if something seemed amiss. Absolutely. And that funding source went away in that 2017 amendment, which seems to me to be huge. Okay, so a a couple spare notes before we move on to the single subject clause portion of the argument. Uh, One, Justice Lillehaug, noted the court for his Baroque hypotheticals, uh, was recused from this case. Justice Chudich came to the rescue, had a couple hypotheticals that I thought were really uh, worth listening to. Here they are. Let me ask you this. Could the, could the legislature have directly given these auditing duties to, to private accounting firms? Would that have been constitutional? Um, boy, I haven't thought of that. Um, fortunately, they didn't, um, but, so I'm not but sure. But why can they do it indirectly by letting counties choose if counties aren't part of the executive? That's the question that we have today is where's the line between clearly Matson was an extreme case. We said, no, you can't do that. But there's, I don't think Matson stands for the proposition that unless you gut an office, it's permissible to alter. Like, let's take an example of the attorney general. Would it be proper for the legislature to say, you can't bring any actions on this, you know, this set of causes of action, um, but you can certainly still give um, advice to uh, state agencies. You know, that's not gutting the whole office, but would that be constitutional? One more weird thing about uh, this portion of the argument is because there's so little law, you had uh, Otto bringing in strange sources of quote-unquote authority, two of which were affidavits by previous state auditors, uh, Mark Dayton and Arnie Carlson, both later governors. Uh, And so you'll see in Otto's brief uh, quotes from the affidavit of Mark Dayton saying, yep, uh, auditing counties is a core function of the auditor, which is such a strange move. Uh, You're like creating your own authority. You don't often see affidavits to the state Supreme Court on legal issues. So uh, that came up a little bit in the argument. And the governor specifically and expressly said, the only reason I'm signing this is because I want to avoid a state shutdown. And he's been very clear both contemporaneously and since then that the provision regarding the state auditor is objectionable to him, both as a former state auditor and as governor. He thinks that it's unconstitutional. So there Why is that relevant? So I think that goes to your point that it may not be relevant what a former governor slash former state auditor, which apparently is a common path to the governor's through the state auditor's office. Rebecca Otto, again, trying to complete the cycle. But I think part of Otto's argument here is that it has been shaped by current history. So having voices from current iterations of the state auditor's office saying this is how we've always done things can be relevant in some way. Um, But I agree that Chief Justice Gilday's questioning, kind of harsh. 
Fair enough. Let's move on. So the second bulk of the argument here, in addition to the fact that Rebecca Otta argues that this legislation violates her core functions impermissibly, is that Rebecca Otto also argues that this entire appropriations bill that came about through the convoluted conference committee process that we had discussed earlier violates the constitutional single subject clause. It's Article 4, Section 17 is a single subject clause and it says, quote, no law shall embrace more than one subject which shall be expressed in its title, end quote. That is the entire section 17. And it was first interpreted in a Minnesota Supreme Court case in 1891, a case that's still cited today. It's called Johnson v. Harrison. And the crux of that case is that what it meant to be a single subject is that all provisions in the legislation needed to be considered, quote, germane, end quote, to that single subject. Johnson always said that the subject can be as broad as possible, but all provisions in that legislation had to be, quote, germane. So that's what Johnson gave us. Fast forward to 1989, because we use Johnson v. Harrison for a long time and still do, in a case called Blanche, the court further expanded its germaneness test of the constitutional single subject clause to say that a common thread, which ran through various sections of the provision at issue, shared a, quote, mere filament, but they upheld the law as not violating the single subject clause. So now we're in the situation where we have the constitutional section 17 single subject clause that has to follow a germaneness test. And the germaneness test has been further interpreted in Blanche in 1989 to mean a mere filament of similarity runs through all the provisions. Right. So here's some of the things that are in this bill. We've obviously got the provision pertaining to state uh, auditor duties. We've also got uh, appropriations for state departments and agencies, uh, various state government finances, uh, topics like railroad condemnations and regulation of cosmetology. So uh, if the state's going to win here, uh, a mere filament is indeed what they're going to need to rely on. This is explicitly an omnibus bill. It was explicitly put together in a haste at the end of the session. And so uh, there's a, I think there's a decent argument that there's no way this could be construed as a single subject. And in fact, that's how Audito frames it. Simply put, if the 2015 omnibus bill is deemed to comport with section 17 of article four, then this clause is left with virtually no meaning. I like that. I like that too. So, I mean, I don't think it's possible to necessarily disagree with Otto's counsel there that the way that laws are passed these days, and Otto's brief does go through the fact that fewer bills are passed per session and more crap is stuffed into these fewer number of bills, suggesting that this is just how legislation works these days. It's hard to disagree that that is not within the spirit of the single subject clause, but does it pass the mere filament test? And here's one other problem I think Otto runs into, is she doesn't clearly challenge that the private audit provisions don't have a mere filament in common with the subject of the rest of the legislation. She argues that the process in general is bad, and it's not clear to me that that's specific enough of a challenge to get her where she needs to be. Yeah, that may be the case. And I think it's several of the justices, uh, despite kind of the absurd facts here, were appeared to side with the very lenient 
interpretation of the single subject clause that the court has historically gone with, uh, including Justice Hudson. I tend to agree with you. Um, this this has the look uh, of a garbage bill. But my question to you, though, is it seems to me you're, you're pushing a, a big rock up a steep hill because when you look at the, the great weight of the authority out there, we have been quite lax and quite deferential to what we just kind of say, well, that's the process. That's how it works. And I guess I'm trying to... In order to rule in your favor on this issue, um, I think you've got to convince, at least me, and maybe my rest of my colleagues too, that this case is somehow very unique. Or that's a redundant, but it's unique. It's different. It's worse than all the others. It is for a couple of reasons. It, it, number one, the way in which it's passed is clearly uh, a garbage bill passed in, in, in an objectionable way. A garbage bill passed in an objectionable way. A review of your 2015 <laughs> legislative session, Minnesotans. Don't pass garbage bills, Minnesota legislature. And I think uh, Justice Hudson has a good point there, and I think she does accurately describe the law. Johnson, all the way back in 1891, does say that the subject of the bill can be as broad as you want. And the counties definitely make the argument that this is a broad subject, and they're not hiding that it's a broad subject. It's all government operations is what they say the subject of this bill is. And so why can't the idea of permitting counties to hire private firms to audit their books be within the broad subject, admittedly, of government operations? Right, and uh, Justice McCaig goes down that road with the county's council. Council, I have a question um, related to the single subject. Um, if we agree with your argument, can you think of a bill that would not fall under the broad category of government operation? Well, it's a pretty broad category. Um, and I've thought about that, and I think you could make an argument that any specific bill, narrowly phrased or broadly phrased, is going to in some way relate to um, state government. Not a good argument that there's no limiting principle he in your rule. He comes up with a couple, but I thought it was pretty stunning that she puts him in this uh, dicey position, and he basically comes back and says... Nah, I'm good. Government operations is everything. Yeah, very interesting strategy. And I think what Justice McKegg is getting at is the broader point that he concedes that anything can pass this mere filament test of germaneness when my subject is as broad as I want to. So I think a lot of people are starting to ask, maybe some people, justices on the court, is the mere filament test appropriate? Or if this test allows this ridiculous process of appropriations to go through, is that causing problems and do we need to change our test? Yeah, and I appreciated Justice McKay, uh, newest justice on the court, and perhaps the one that seemed least uh, kind of cowed by this long history of precedent. And she was standing up for kind of common sense at certain points like this. But counsel, isn't the purpose of the single subject clauses so that there's a notice, there's a transparency as to the legislative process? And when you look at the a whole page title, how is your average Minnesotan to know what is included in that bill? And I think Justice McKegg is pretty proud of the fact, and she said so publicly, that she always remembers who she's representing when she's up there. And I think her question directly went to 
how are common Minnesotans supposed to be able to follow our processes and understand who is representing them and what they're doing if we let this continue? Yeah, so uh, a little resistance put up on the single subject clause. That said, uh, I'm personally not optimistic about uh, auto winning this portion of the argument. The precedent is completely daunting. I think that there may be an appetite to change this test. I am actually more convinced that this test is completely unworkable. And I think the justices may be as well after hearing cases that they've heard recently, particularly the line item veto case. Because one of the arguments that the ACLU makes in the amicus brief it filed is that this process renders any government veto power completely obsolete. If all of these provisions are wrapped up in appropriations bills, as here, the choice that the governor has is I have to pass this bill and, or shut down the government. And the government, the governor can only line item veto appropriations, which this provision was not. It was not an appropriations provision. It was a substantive provision about how the government operates. So there was no way Governor Dayton could have vetoed this. And I think that argument, kind of wrapped up in a separation of powers principle, is pretty compelling to me. And so it sounds like there's some appetite to reconsider this test and reconsider what it's permitting the legislature to do. Um, So I'm a little more optimistic than you. Maybe so. So I think that wraps up our inaugural episode of The Common Law. Uh, Thanks, as always, to Joy, our communications director. You should go to thecommnlaw.com, our website, thecommonlaw.com. There you can check out Minnesota's only, we think, uh, calendar of free CLE opportunities. That we will update. That will be updated going forward. Uh, you can also get us get in touch with us uh, at The Common Law on Facebook, Twitter, or through the website. Excellent. Have a nice one, commoners.